0: Scripture reading this morning will be uh, taken from the book of Hebrews, uh, chapter 10, starting in verse 19. It's Hebrews ten nineteen. Since therefore, brethren, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God... Let us draw near with a sincere heart, in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as it is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near.
1: morning church all right we're in part number five we're we're over the halfway mark of our sunday morning sermon series entitled one another and what we're trying to do is learn from scripture the principles that god has laid out for us that if we practice these principles we will build amongst ourselves in this group a divine like fellowship a connection a relationship um, one that is distinctly different than any other type of community that you see in the world. The kind of relationship that the church can have and the church can experience is different than anything else that we could have in this entire world. And what it becomes is a witness to the world that there's actually a love that is available that is like no other. That's how important our fellowship is. What our congregational fellowship looks like and so today the command that we're going to look at is this very simple one in verse 24 where he says that we are to consider one another now in my study this week I got a little bit excited about um, presenting this passage because as I dug into the meaning of some of these words like consider one another and Ken's version said to stimulate uh, you might have provoke Uh, when you get into that word it Here's the command, what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to get close to people and jab them with something sharp. That's what it means to provoke or to stimulate. So, the command today is to get really, really close to your brothers and sisters and jab them with something really sharp. So, uh, this you might call this and maybe not consider one another, but be the younger brother to one another. (laughs) All right, so this morning let's do what the command is, the context where this command is seen, and how it plays out. In our lives. Number one, the command. Look in verse 24 again. Consider one another. There are three really simple parts to this command. There are three really basic components to the command. But what's important about this that we've got to make sure you understand is the order in which this command is written, the the order of the language. Now, the English actually changes the order. When you go back to the original language, it's written in different order. The English changes it. You notice the English says, consider how to stir up one another. Or you might have, consider how to provoke one another. Now that order is a little bit twisted. Actually, the order should be, consider one another, how you stir them up. I'll I'll explain why that matters in just a moment. Let's start with consider. What does it mean to consider? The first thing is the action. The idea that we, the the, the general idea, is this: when we consider one another, is that we would think about, that we would have on our minds how we can encourage each other to be people who live in love and good works. That the idea of the Christian fellowship is that we come into this place and we think about, we pray about we talk about what's on our mind is how I can, as a brother in this place, help you as one of my siblings in Christ be a person that loves and does good work. Seems to make sense, right? Loving and good works is is the ethos of Christianity. And so we got to think about how to help each other. And considering just means this, that you put all of your attention, all of your thought, all of your mental Energy is focused solely on one another. Now, this action is really simple, right? The command is pretty basic. I want you to have your attention, your focus, your mind on something, on one another. This action is really simple, but it's going to have a major effect. Now, let's look at the second part. What are you actually supposed to put all of your attention, all of your mind's energy on in this fellowship? What are you supposed to actually consider? And that's where the order gets really important. It really should read this way. Consider one another how to help them love and good works. That's really how it should read. Some of your versions probably say, consider how to stir one another up. Is that what most of yours says in the English translation? Consider how to stir one another up. Now here's why this subtle difference matters. He's not actually asking us to give all of our minds energy and attention to the phrase, how to stir. What he's actually asking you to put all of your mind's energy on is not the method of how to stir, but the object, the people. Consider one another. Think about one another. This phrase is not, what I want you to do is think about the most effective strategies on how to motivate abstract people. That's not what he's talking about. He's not asking us to go home and to think about, you know, what are the most effective methods in 2017 for motivating people in general? You see what I'm getting at? What the Hebrew writer is saying is not, I want you to meditate, focus, and be completely centered on methods of motivation. What I want you to be thinking about is actually each other. Give me a head notch, so you understand the difference. It's a little subtle, but give me feedback. Do you understand the difference? He's asking us not to be obsessed over methods of how to poke people and prod people. Like this works and this doesn't. He's asking us to think about, to focus our attention, to bring our minds to dwell upon each other. Actually the people. He wants us to consider people. That means he wants you to know people. He wants you to understand people. He wants you to empathize with people. And he actually wants you to pray for specific people in your fellowship. Everybody with me? What he wants us to do is know the people in our fellowship so well that we understand when they act a certain way. That when we see them, we pray for them. That we are so intimately involved in their lives that we're aware of opportunities they have to show love and to do good works, so that we're there to help them do those love and good works and honestly church this is incredibly hard you know last week uh, we talked about forgiving one another and I was just convinced that you know what I think forgiving one another might be one of the hardest as I studied this week I actually was more convinced that this simple command to consider one another might actually be harder than forgiving one another What what they are asking us to do is actually think about other people more than we think about ourselves. Do you know we think about ourselves a lot? If you disagree with me, I'll just throw out some science at you just because that usually works, right? I'm just kidding. But um, there's been several research studies. Um, Dale Carnegie, the famous author, says that we actually give 95% of our mental energy to ourselves. 95%. Who do you think about most when you have nothing to think about? Who do you pray about most when you're worried and anxious? When you walk into this building, into this fellowship, whose well-being, pleasure, enjoyment, satisfaction are you thinking about? In fact, there actually is research behind this. Um, In Edinburgh, there was a group of social psychologists that studied that found that we spend... 60% of our communication talking about ourselves. You ready for this one? 80% of our social media posts are about ourselves. 80% of people's social media posts are about themselves. So Harvard actually wanted to figure out why. Why do we talk about ourselves so much? Why do we think about ourselves so much? Why? between our ears is self, the thing that we just think about so much. And so Harvard actually brought in 200 people and they hooked them up to the uh, functional MRI machines which basically measures like blood flow and a bunch of other things I can't explain. But um, what they had those 200 people do was, first they had to talk about opinions that they held, beliefs they held, and things that they enjoyed. And as they talked about that, they measured activity in the brain. And then they had the same 200 people talk about opinions other people held, and beliefs other people held, and characteristics about other people, and things other people enjoyed. And you know what they found? Is that when we talk about other people versus when we talk about ourselves, when we talk about ourselves, something in our brain lights up that doesn't light up when we talk about other people. Psychologists call it the reward center. I've talked to you about the reward center of your brain before. It's the same part of your brain that fires when you eat good food and you experience intimacy. And it's the same part of your brain that fires um, falsely when we take things like alcohol and drugs. When we talk about ourselves, ourselves, not others, but ourselves, our brain is actually firing saying, this is good, this is pleasure, you enjoy this, you like this. You do that. And so this is incredibly hard for us. And what the Bible's calling us to do is have a new kind of mind that actually thinks about other people. And what, the outcome of this is, if we're thinking about other people, that we want to actually stir them up to provoke people to love and good works. You know, it's incredibly simple what God wants us as people to be. It's not overly complicated, is it? Um, we can make it pretty complicated we can get into a lot of the nitty-gritty of the details of what things should look like but at the end of the day the kind of people God wants us to be are people that out of a natural flow love God and others and serve with good works it's nothing more than that and in this fellowship we know that God wants us all of us all 300 or so that are sitting here today to be people that love and do good works we're going to have to help each other do that. And if we're going to do that, we've got to come into this fellowship saying, I'm going to think about other people. I'm going to get close to other people. And I'm going to know them well enough and pray for them long enough that when I'm around them, I have the confidence to tell them the truth and help them become a person that loves and good works. And one of the implications of this is this, that it actually takes other people in your life to be someone who loves and serves with good works. You see, this text flies in the face of modern Christianity today, of modern thinking. The Western individualized thinking today says that I can be a good, faithful, sound, believing Christian all by myself without anybody else in my life. This text flies in the face of that and says that we actually need each other to become the kind of people that love and do good works. And so if others need you to do that for them, that means that you need others to do it for you. You've got to be in relationships where this can happen. So how do we do this? Verse 25 is going to tell us the context. So that's number one, the command. I hope you make sense of that. Number two, the context. Where does this happen? This stirring one another up to loving good works, where we consider one another, happens as we, as the Bible says, meet together. Now, if you've hung around church long enough in our fellowship, you've probably heard this verse used as the great way of explaining why you should not skip our assemblies together. Very great use of this text. Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together is the habit of some. Most of you heard this right, that you've been around and it means don't skip, right? And it certainly does mean that. But it means so much more. The assembling together of Christians... For the Hebrew writer was most certainly the public worship service on the Lord's Day. Most certainly it was that. But it was actually the gathering together of Sunday and other moments in the week as they spent their lives together. You can see the importance of this emphasized by both a negative and a positive command in verse 25. Let's start with the negative. He says, do not neglect or forsake the assembling of yourselves together. That's the negative part of this. If we're going to consider one another, we actually can't neglect or forsake the assembly. That means don't turn your back on people and leave them when they're in need. This would be the same exact word that they would use in a military context if people were at battle and you were part of the army and you turned your back and you ran away and left fellow soldiers in the field. Now, those of you that have served in our military um, would know the, the, the great travesty of that, right? It's just unbelievable to think about that idea that you would turn your back and leave comrades in danger. And he uses the same word when it comes to considering one another as we gather together. Don't forsake each other. You see, I think the writer is actually getting to the bottom of the reality That it's incredibly hard to be a person full of love and full of service of good works. And we need each other desperately to to get to that point in our lives. And so if we forsake the assembling of ourselves, we've turned our back on each other. We've left each other in need because it takes a group to become Christ-like. You can't do it on your own. You see, early Christians risked an incredible amount of of things, to be able to meet together. If you look in your text, go down uh, a few verses to verse 32. I want to read this for you. Because the writer is going to give you some more detail about what these early Christians were willing to risk so that they could make sure they met together. Now, you know that the early Christians were beginning to suffer. Um, They began began actually to uh, suffer under the government, and some of them were in prison because they would not confess that Caesar is Lord And Jesus as Lord and so the Christians were being held by Romans and they were saying listen we we don't believe Caesar is Lord we believe Jesus is Lord or, or the one we serve he's the king and they would be thrown into prison because of that and down in verse 32 it says this recall the former days when after you were enlightened became a Christian you endured a hard struggle with sufferings sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. So sometimes, Christians, you were the one being mistreated. But even if you weren't the one being mistreated, he says sometimes you were a partner of the one being mistreated. Now how? Verse 34. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. You see, what was happening in the first century, because they valued so much, they placed such a high priority on the church being able to gather collectively, is that when a certain group of believers were taken off to prison, the rest of the believers, knowing the risk of losing their property, their actual house, would say, let's get together, we're still going to meet at the prison with the fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. They were willing to do that. They allowed their stuff to be taken because they valued meeting together. They knew the importance of this. Considering that person in prison, considering the need to be encouraged to not give up, considering the need to become Christ-like in love and good works, they were, they were willing to let their things be plundered by society so they could meet together. And the question I asked myself as I was reading this, uh, this week was this. What things do I have in my life that I'm sometimes afraid to lose that keep me from prioritizing meeting with Christians? Do we have things that we are afraid to lose that keep us from prioritizing considering one another, the assembly? I do believe it's high time for us. I know that this verse was used for many, many years that put a lot of pressure on people to not skip the assembly and that put a sour taste in people's mouths at times. I understand that. But I believe it is an important time in our culture to say that the public assembly of the church should carry high priority with you. It should. And I don't flinch at that. That we should actually prioritize being together. And I'm asking you, what things in your life do you have right now that you might actually have to lose like the first century Christians lost to prioritize being together? I'll never forget a story about Matt. When Matt was a, our campus minister down in Athens, yes, he was, I was a student. He was a full-time employee. Um, <laughs> uh, he came to me and two other of the student leaders at our campus ministry. And we had a great fellowship, a great uh, Christian community kind of going in Athens, and we had a house um, that had in the dining room a pool table and in the living room a ping pong table, and we ate on that, and we lived in that, and we had, we had a lot of friends come over, and every Saturday night we were having all the Christians uh, that were in the church group and their friends come over, playing pool, playing ping pong, eating food, and we were staying up till 2, 3, four o'clock in the morning, and then going to church the next day. And I don't forget he came to me and a couple of the leaders and he said, I want you guys to consider giving up your late Saturday night gathering because our Sunday morning assembly is suffering. He said, class is dull and dry, no one's engaged. And after Sunday morning service is over, no one wants to stay, everyone wants to leave and go take a nap because they're exhausted. He said, are you guys willing to maybe give up that late Saturday night activity so that our gathering on Sunday could be better? He was thinking about the church. What what do you have that might need to be lost? What priority are you afraid to lose that's keeping you from prioritizing this assembly? Well, you might say, well, I show up. It's not like I don't show up. I show up. And I would caution you with this thought. What does the Hebrew writer say is the opposite of neglecting? What would you think is the opposite of neglecting? If, if he says, don't neglect, what is the opposite of that? What should you do? You see, the positive command is not this. Don't neglect, but rather attend. Attendance is not the opposite of neglecting. Everybody with me? Look what the opposite is. Encourage one another. The opposite of skipping church is not coming to church. The opposite is engaging and encouraging one another. That means to get really close to people in your life and exhort them and comfort them. Uh, We did on January 15th a lesson on encouragement, so I'll let you go ahead and find that one. I believe it should be online. But this means that we need to be involved with people well enough in our life to exhort them to be people who love and serve. That means we are with them in their difficulties We awaken them in their opportunities and we encourage them to be the kind of people that they are called to be. You cannot get there without intentional time together. Considering one another demands our time, our attention, and our selflessness. But what do we encourage people with? Let's finish with this idea in verse 19 through 23. That if you've bought into this idea that when we're together, we've got to give our minds to each other. We've got to think about each other. We've got to have an objective that says we're going to be people that love and serve and we've got to help each other get there. What are we going to actually encourage each other with? What's the message? Well, that's the anchor that he gives us in verses 19 through 23. It's the very message that is supposed to encourage you. And there's two things that stand out. Number one, in this content that we share with each other, point number three, the content number one, Verses 19 through 21, he shares what we have. Listen how he reads this. Therefore, brothers, since we have, what do we have? First of all, confidence. We have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. The first thing that we have is confidence to come close to God, to enter into the presence of God because of the blood of Jesus Christ. So when we get together and we're encouraging each other, what we have to remind each other of is this stable confidence that we're supposed to have that we can enter into the presence of God because of the blood of Jesus, that we have no fear of that. The second thing we have in verse 21 is this, and since we have a great priest, we have a companion who is over the house of God, We have both confidence to come close to God and companionship to walk into that throne. We have a high priest, Jesus Christ. What what he's saying is we've got to remind each other of what we have in Jesus Christ. Incredible confidence and companionship on our journey to know God. We need to be pointing each other to that. And secondly, not only what we have, but what we do. In verse 22, he says that we're supposed to draw near Verse 23 says that we're supposed to hold fast the confession of our hope. In verse 24, he says that we're supposed to consider others. And so we've got to help each other draw near to God. We've got to remind each other to hold fast to our confidence of our hope. And what we do is we actually consider each other. You see, what's interesting about this is is in our considering one another, one of the ways that you actually help encourage each other, is to remind that person you're encouraging to be someone considering another. Do you see, this is actually the cycle of life-giving, selfless love that our community of Christians is supposed to be known for. That as I walk into this assembly ready to consider someone else and not myself, one of the ways that I help you is to remind you that you're supposed to be considering someone else. Do you see how this life cycle of love begins to flow? We've got to do that. But the question is, who's going to kickstart that in our fellowship? Who's going to do this? Who's going to be willing to go first, to walk into this place and say, I am forgetting myself, dying to myself, and I'm willing to think about somebody else. I'm willing to start considering others and not myself. The truth is, it actually won't start with us. There's nobody physically in this room right now that has the capacity to do this on their own. It can't be done that way. The reality is because we can't actually generate or create love, we can only share the kind of love that we receive. You see, love is like energy. It's not created or destroyed. It must be received and then transferred. You actually don't create love. You just receive love and then transfer love. As Paul would say in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, that we have concluded that Jesus Christ, because he died for us, all have died, and therefore we should not live for ourselves anymore, but for him. You see, this selfless love that God is asking for us to do in considering one another starts with God and Jesus Christ his existence demonstrates what considering others really is because you realize that he was long before ever, ever alive considering me you ever wonder why it's so hard for you to consider another person instead of yourself if we're honest it's really difficult to do this but have you ever wondered why it's so hard Well, the reason is because we have yet to accept that Jesus Christ has long before us considered us. As long as you believe that no one loves you, no one cares for you, no one thinks about you like you do, you will be the only person that you think about. If you think that you love yourself and think about yourself and care for yourself the best, then you'll think about yourself only. But when you realize and see in the gospel of Jesus Christ that there is a perfect one who loves you, knows you, thinks about you, and cares for you better than you can even care for yourself, you then have the ability to trust Him and now you're free to consider other people. That's the great blessing of being in Jesus Christ. Quickly, how do you obey? Number one, ask yourself this, who in your life can you begin to consider how to stir up to love and good works. Who's in your life right now? You can't do this for 300, but you can do this for two or three. Jesus had an inner circle of a couple. Who in your life can you do this for? Number two, commit to one focused prayer per day about someone in your life. Dedicate an entire prayer to someone else and not you. Try that. See what happens. Think about the people that sit around you. Pray for them. Number three, Make your investment into the people or the family that you've chosen to invest in. We've challenged you this year to invest in one new relationship, one person or one family, one that doesn't yet exist in your life. Make an investment into that person to that family this week. See what happens to your life when you begin to bless other people. And if you need blessed by the blood of Jesus Christ, by the gospel message, let's start there because you won't have the resources to love and care for other people until you have the resource of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's stand and sing.